Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture and turn to the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1. How do you know what a spirit-filled church looks like? Well, what does the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, do? He exalts Christ. So what does a spirit-filled church do? But exalt Christ. How do you know where the spirit is? It's where Christ is made much of and glorified. It's where Christ is the center of all things. It's where Christ is preached. It's where Christ is the focus. I don't know about you, but for myself, how often I need to be refocused on Christ. Forgive us, O Lord, for the times this week when we were not focused on Him like we should have been. So let us go to God's Word and Refocus again on Christ from Matthew chapter 1. Would you stand with me as I read Matthew 1, verse 6. I'm going to start in the second half of verse 6, verse 6 through verse 11. After verse 11, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are thankful for his holy word. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. And what we know not, teach us. We pray in 
the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible is a book of trees. Perhaps an arboretum of trees to behold along the way. Do you believe me? There are trees at the beginning, trees called the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trees are used to describe people. In Psalm 1-3, it says this, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons and its leaf does not wither. Or like in Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious when the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Or again, how about the tree there at the very center of God's word, the tree of Calvary? a tree of death and crucifixion. There is a tree also at the very end of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, again, this tree called the tree of life. That yields its 12 kinds of fruit and whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. At times, we should take a step back and take in the panoramic view of the whole forest of trees that makes up the beautiful landscape of the Bible. But at times we can pick out one tree to gaze upon its beauty and its intricacy. Maybe you have not been accused of taking time to stop and smell the roses. But how many have been accused of not stopping to take the time to marvel and wonder at the magnificence of God's creation of trees? Think about God's creation of trees. Some are massive. Some have root systems that can go down deep and be intricate in their design. Some trees are so big that people have cut holes in the middle of them so that people can drive their cars through them. Trees are often a picture of strength, stability, and nobility. We can say that a tree looks very stately, by which we mean it is impressive, dignified, elegant, and grand. It's no wonder then when we come to the Bible that we see trees are often used to describe kingdoms. Perhaps the most well-known is Jesus' parable of the mustard seed. Jesus makes a comparison about the kingdom of heaven when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a massive tree, bigger than anything else. Because the kingdom of heaven is the greatest kingdom there is or ever will be. If trees can represent kingdoms, what is the most important part of any kingdom? It is the king. It's the one who is supposed to be 
leading the kingdom, expanding the kingdom, growing the kingdom. The path of the king often determines the path of the kingdom. We don't often recognize it, but this is one of the most important questions that every person must answer. Not just some people, every person. This is a question that every person must answer. Who is the king? How you answer that question will determine the course of your life. Whose kingdom will reign supreme? Those questions must have an answer, and whether you know it or not, or whether you recognize it or not, you've already given an answer to those questions. The question is, have you answered them correctly? Who is the king? Once again, we come to Jesus' family tree, his genealogy perhaps another tree in the Bible. We see in this section of his genealogy that we've read this morning that he is the son of David. And so what would we expect from someone who is in the line of David? Who is David? He is the preeminent king of Israel. He is perhaps one of the most well-known kings of Israel. Jesus' family tree is a line of kings. In Matthew, many say you have the legal line of Jesus' family tree that goes through Joseph. But more than being Jesus' legal family line, this part of Matthew's genealogy highlights Jesus' regal family line. Jesus coming from royalty. Jesus has a line of kings in his past family. And so what does this tell us about Christ? What are we to make of this overarching statement that Jesus is the son of David? And why is it important? Why does Jesus being the son of David, what does that have to do with anything in our lives and how we live? And so I want us to look this morning three ways the genealogy highlights Jesus as the son of David. So you can take a look there in your bulletin if that's helpful to follow along. Three ways the genealogy highlights Jesus as the son of David. Number one, in the genealogy of Jesus, the fluctuating of kings highlights the flawless king. In the genealogy of Jesus, the fluctuating of kings highlights the flawless king. On a hot summer day, have you ever sat in a room with no air conditioning? Maybe all you have is an oscillating fan. And as you sit there in the heat, sweating, longing for relief, the oscillating fan continues to move around the room. 
And for a brief moment, you feel relief as the oscillating fan is pointing in your direction, but quickly that relief fades as the oscillating fan turns away from you. And you are there in agony, waiting, longing again for the fan to come back to give you another cool breeze. Cool, hot, cool, hot. The line of David is similar in that it often is oscillating, but it's not cool and hot. It is oscillating between good and evil. And as we look at this line, we see some good kings and we see some evil kings. Some kings were even so evil, they are not on the list. And so as you look through this list, you get to Joram, and then after that you get to Uzziah. But in the middle there, between those two, Joram and Uzziah, there were three kings Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah, and they were left off of the list. Most likely, some people think they were left off because of their wickedness. Their wickedness in connection with the evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And so we recognize as we go through this list of kings, the line of David is not a straight line of righteousness. It's not simply an upward trajectory of the kings getting better and better. There is much disobedience, unfaithfulness, idolatry, wickedness, and evil along the way. David's line is like a roller coaster. Sometimes up, sometimes down, sometimes upside down. It is a fluctuating line, but it's not a consistent line. And look at where it starts. At the very beginning, it starts with David. David was the youngest son of Jesse, the smallest, the most unimpressive, yet he was chosen by God to replace Saul, the pseudo-king of Israel. That is a major theme in God's word. Pseudo-kings and pseudo-kingdoms. False kings and false kingdoms. David was chosen because he was a man after God's own heart. He becomes the standard by which all other kings in his line are measured. How did this king measure up to David? Did he walk in David's ways or did he forsake the ways of his forefather? David sets the benchmark as it were and yet David is not perfect. Far from it. Matthew does not hide the stains of Jesus' genealogy from us. Instead, he puts them on display and he says to us, have you considered this stain? We would like to hide the stains, wouldn't we? In fact, if a clothing, piece of clothing is stained enough, we would not even wear it anymore. David's stain becomes front and center. Comes front and center because David fathered Solomon by a woman with whom he had an adulterous relationship. This is the fourth of five women that are mentioned in the, in the genealogy. But notice, this woman isn't named. We know this woman to be Bathsheba, 
But Matthew calls her the wife of Uriah. I find this fascinating. And what makes it fascinating is that Matthew does not follow the flow of the story that we find in the Old Testament. So let's think about that story for a moment. David has an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and she conceives. And at the time, her husband, a foreigner called Uriah the Hittite, was fighting away with the army of Israel. Here is a foreigner who has put his faith and trust in Yahweh. He is not fighting against Israel. He is fighting for Israel. He is fighting against the enemies of God. And when David finds out that Bathsheba has conceived, David calls Uriah from the front lines in hopes that he can get Uriah to have relations with his wife. And so David's sin would be able to be covered up. But it doesn't work. Uriah proves to be more righteous than David. And so David orders the commander of his army, Joab, to put Uriah where the fighting is the most fierce. And then to have the men around him pull back, leaving Uriah exposed so that he is killed. And so it is that Uriah dies. David is not only an adulterer, David is a murderer. He has the blood of Uriah on his hands. And then David takes Bathsheba and makes her his wife. The son that she is carrying dies at birth, but she conceives again and gives birth to Solomon. So technically, when Solomon is born, he is not Uriah's wife, but David's wife. But Matthew wants us to remember righteous Uriah. He wants us to remember the sin of David. David was not perfect. He was not flawless. And it becomes a reminder throughout the generations. In fact, 1 Kings verse, uh, uh, chapter 15, verses 4 through 5. 1 Kings 15, 4 and 5. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Wow, David's great, right? Yes, except, except, it goes on to say, in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. God used even this adulterous relationship and this murderous action to continue the line of the Messiah. And even this woman Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, was blessed by the Lord. Solomon, however, also was not a perfect king. Although he was wiser than everyone else, he had his own issues. 1 Kings 11 tells us about how his wives turned away his heart from the Lord. 
700 wives, 300 concubines Solomon had acquired for himself, being disobedient to God's command in Deuteronomy 7 that the king was not to acquire many wives, Solomon decided to forsake that way and so because of his wives and foreign wives, they turned his heart away from the Lord. And while Solomon might have been described as the wisest king, he has a son, Rehoboam, who demonstrates his foolishness. And it's through Rehoboam's actions that the kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. We keep going down the line. Abijah, evil. Asaph, good. Jehoshaphat, good. Joram, evil. Uzziah, good. Jotham, good. Ahaz, evil. Hezekiah, good. Manasseh, evil. Amos, evil. Josiah, good. And Jeconiah, evil. Back and forth, no stability, no lasting strength. The line of the kings of David is like an oscillating fan where no one is able to finally and fully find any relief. Why all of these fluctuating kings? Because it makes us long for a flawless king. No more going between good and evil. We need the ultimately righteous king in whom there is no evil, wickedness, or sin. We need the perfect son of David, Jesus Christ. With a flawless king, the kingdom and all those in the kingdom are moving toward greatness and glory. This is a king you can trust. This is a king you can follow. This is a king who can give you life. Because he is the king who will never fail you. He will never lead you astray. And in fact, he is the king who has laid down his life so that you can be found. So you can be saved. So you can be in the kingdom of God that is secure. There is no other king to wait for, to long for. For the flawless king is before us. Praise him for his perfection. Praise him for his humility. Praise him he is coming again to make everything right and new. And only a righteous king will be able to lead his people into righteousness. And this is the crux of that question, who is king? Because in our sinful nature, we want to be the king. I want to be the king. I want to call the shots. The only problem is, I am not a righteous king. And you are not a righteous king. In fact, we can follow this trajectory into the book of Romans, chapter 3. Verse 10, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have sinned, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We cannot be king because we will never lead ourselves into righteousness. 
we will only ever lead ourselves into unrighteousness. We are not good. We are not the good king. And so what do we need? We need one who is righteous, one who will give us his righteousness. And that is what we find in Romans 5. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is the answer to our problem. We are not righteous, but there is one man who is righteous, and he gives his righteousness to all who put their faith and trust in him and in him alone for salvation. He is the king of righteousness. And that is why, brother and sister, dear believer in Jesus Christ, that is why sometimes we have this internal wrestling in our own hearts because we know the righteousness of Jesus Christ, yet we still know that we struggle. We still know that we sin. We still know that we are not fully and finally what we should be. We are not complete yet, like it says in Romans 7. So I find to be a law that when I want to do right, how do I know what is right? Because I know the righteous one. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am left to myself like that oscillating fan, but thanks be to God that there is now no condemnation before God the Father because I am Christ's, because he is mine, and because he is the righteous king. Number two. In the genealogy of Jesus, the myriad of kings highlights the multifaceted king. In the genealogy of Jesus, the myriad of kings highlights the multifaceted king. I'm using some big words today, but I trust as you follow along, you'll be able to figure out with me what this idea of multifaceted means what's in a name much is potentially lost in our use of names we name our kids because we like the way that it sounds or because it is a family name or because it fits with a particular theme that we're going for maybe we sometimes name our children with the hopes that they will live up to the meaning of their name there's not much meaning in my name. I don't think my parents named me Tyler because they were hoping that I would be one who tiles. Oh. 
There are meanings, however, behind names. All of these kings in the line of Jesus are given specific names. We often don't think about what their names mean and how the meaning of those names play a significant role in their lives, but also as a collective, they also play a significant role in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, what do these names that we've read mean? I'm going to list them through here for us in a moment. But as I list them, I want you to consider Christ in the meaning of these names. I want you to think about him as these list of names and their meanings are read. David means beloved. Solomon means man of peace. Rehoboam means the nation is enlarged. Kind of ironic given that Rehoboam divided the nation. Abijah means Yahweh is my father. Asaph means gatherer of people. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh is judge. Joram means Yahweh is exalted. Uzziah means my strength is Yahweh. Jotham means perfection of Yahweh. Ahaz means Yahweh has held. Hezekiah means Yahweh strengthens. Manasseh means to forget, and Amos means to carry. Josiah means Yahweh has healed, and Jeconiah means Yahweh has established. Here we have a myriad of kings. Taken individually, their names are powerful, but how much more so when all these names find their fulfillment in Jesus? The myriad of kings finds its fulfillment in one multifaceted king, like a diamond that you turn in the light, and with each turn, the light hits it in just a different way so that you are able to catch another aspect of the beauty of this gem. And I I hope as you heard the names of those you would hear how they all converge in the true king. He is the epitome of all those names and he fulfills all of those names at the same time. There are a couple of those names that might be more difficult to see how Jesus fulfills them. What about the name like Manasseh? Manasseh, which means to forget. Maybe if we remember Manasseh, we would like to forget Manasseh. He was a wicked king. One of the most wicked kings in the line of David. Yet, even though it looked like Manasseh had forgotten God, at the end of his life, he repented of his sin. He came to his senses, and it says there in 2 Chronicles 33, 13, he knew that the Lord was God. That verb from which the name Manasseh comes, is later used in Isaiah 44, 21, where God says, I formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Notice, God uses that verb with himself as the subject. I will not forget you, Israel. And is that not the ultimate truth in Christ? We will not be forgotten by God because we are in Christ. 
because we belong to Christ, God will not forget us. But it, it is also a name prominently used by Joseph in Genesis to name one of his sons. And he says this, he names him Manasseh, he says, because God has made me forget all my hardship, Genesis 41, 51. Is that not what happens to us in Christ? Christ makes us forget all of our hardship, all of our working, all of our toil, all of our striving to be righteous on our own, all of our trying to make our way to God, all of our toiling in Christ, because Christ gives us his righteousness, we can forget all of that toiling. It's no more us making our way to God because God, through Jesus Christ, has made his way to us. What about the king named Amos, which means to carry? Behind it is the idea that there is one who is to carry a heavy burden, a load that is weighed down. And does not Jesus become to us the great Amos when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden light. We need a king who does everything and is everything for us. A king who is like a kaleidoscope. That when you turn it, you see a different aspect, a different arrangement of colors. And when they are all layered one upon another, you behold the beauty of the king. Number three, the genealogy of Jesus, in the genealogy of Jesus, the kings who led to exile highlight the king whose kingdom is established. The kings who led to exile highlight the king whose kingdom is established. Jeconiah, that last king, Remember his name, Yahweh, has established. Jeconiah is the last king in the line before the deportation of Israel and Judah, before the exile happens, before the people of Israel are removed from their homeland by the Babylonians. But do you remember the promise that Yahweh made to David? I will establish your throne forever. It will be certain. It will be secure. Jeconiah, the last one, it does not look like the throne is established. It does not look like it's secure. All of God's people are being removed from their home. And in fact, look with me for a moment. Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. The Lord calls Isaiah to be his prophet. And you remember the Lord's dilemma there in verse 8. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, that's Isaiah, here I am, send me. He said, go and say to this people. It says verse 9 now. 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Here is the kingdom. Here is the kingdom, Isaiah. And you preach against that kingdom. And you preach judgment. And you preach destruction. And that tree will be burned to the ground. And all that is left of that tree is a stump. It is dead. It is of no good. It is of no use. But then what? The very last line. The holy seed is its stump. There is one who will come who will raise up the tree again. Turn over a few pages. Isaiah 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Here he is, the Messiah. Here he is, the king. The tree is dead. There's nothing there. It's been burned. But here comes this shoot, this new shoot. And from this branch and from his roots shall come fruit. Shall come a kingdom like no other kingdom. Jesus is the raised up offspring of David. And then look with me for a moment at the very end of God's word, Revelation chapter 22. Verse 16. Jesus is the exalted Son of David, the exalted descendant of David. And look at what Jesus says of himself in Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is the hope of the church. He is, look at what it says there. He is both the root and the fruit of David. And we think about Jesus as being that which comes from the line of David, that which comes out of the line of David, that's what grows out of David's line. But Jesus says something very specific and very different here. I am the root of David's line. David's line of kings starts with Jesus Christ. He isn't just the fruit of the tree. He is the root of the tree. He is the one who has grounded the tree. The kingly tree and the kingdom is grounded in the eternal nature and person of Jesus Christ. He is the reason why the tree exists. He is the reason why the tree grows. He is the reason why David came and all of David's descendants came. He is the bright and morning star. Without him, there is no tree. 
Without him, there is no root. Without him, there is no David. Without him, there is no church. That is how David got his authority to be king. What does it say in Psalm 110? The the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, as the son of David, is the root of our lives. As we work through these verses, we've seen last week that Jesus fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant and the blessing that comes through Christ. And as I thought about it, I thought, how many people want the blessing of Jesus? They want to be blessed by Jesus. The Jesus who comes to bless his people, we like that Jesus. That Jesus makes us feel good. That Jesus is easy to accept. But leaving him there in the realm of only blessing, We've attempted to section off Jesus into pieces and so that he might be more acceptable by people. Who doesn't want the blessing of Jesus? Especially during the season of Advent. We want the blessing of Jesus, but we don't want the ruling and the reign of Jesus. Give me a blessing, Jesus, but don't tell me what to do. Don't you dare tell me how to live my life. Bless me all you want, but let me make my own choices. Don't you tell me that I would ever do anything wrong. We don't want the ruling king, Jesus, because we want to be our own king. We want authority. But would we ever see that the blessing of Jesus will only come to those who accept him as king? You can't get the blessing of Jesus without Jesus being at the same time your king. If Jesus isn't your king, there is no blessing that will bring any lasting benefit to your life. The blessing from Jesus comes through our submission to Jesus. If Jesus is ruling, if he is king, we have to submit to him and obey him. We have to do what he says. Are you willing to do what Jesus says? It is first us confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is king, and believing in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. But it goes even beyond that. As we are in the first part of Matthew, we go to the very end of Matthew now, chapter 28, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is where the Great Commission starts. It begins with the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is king, and because he has all authority, and because he has all power, then he tells us to go. Make disciples.
I believe one of the reasons why some will not come into church is because there is no power in the church. Why come to a church where there is no power? Where does that power begin? It begins in lives who submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. If our lives look no different than the world's, it does not accurately reflect the power of Jesus Christ. If there is no power in us, why would we expect anyone to want what we have? It's not about attraction through music. It's not about attraction through some other pragmatic means. It's about the power of God through Jesus Christ changing you. Because Jesus is the son of David. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would make us those who are being changed. That the power of the gospel would be made evident in our lives. May it be clear to this world through us that all authority in heaven and on earth is Christ's. And let us see that life and salvation and light and hope only comes through him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.